This is the Read Your Bible Podcast, the daily podcast designed to help you understand and apply the scriptures. Nothing will grow your relationship with Jesus Christ more than studying the Bible for yourself. I'm your host, Drew Tankersley, and for the next few moments, I want to invite you to join me as we dive into God's Word together. We'll ask God to help us see what He wants us to see so that we can be who He wants us to be. One of my favorite singers growing up was a man named Michael English. The power and the quality of his voice was always very appealing to me. One of my favorite songs that he ever sang was a song entitled, In Christ Alone. I was 12 years old when I first heard this song, and I sang it in my basement dozens and dozens and dozens of times. English's life itself is a testimony to the truth that we're going to learn today. And as I read today's verses, I cannot get the lyric of that song out of my head. In every victory, let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope is Christ alone. The sentiment relayed in that lyric is the same sentiment that Moses uses in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And on today's podcast, we learn of Moses' warning to the people against the deceptive lure of self-righteousness as they make their final preparations to enter the land. I want you to notice with me verses 4 through 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 9 today. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You're not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise that he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, and do not forget, how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have rebelled against the Lord from the day you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses warns the people against the insidious temptation to come with their victory in the land the Lord their God was giving them. The chapter begins again with the promise that the people will cross the Jordan and enter the land just as God had said they would. This land is filled with at least seven nations that were all greater and more powerful than the Israelite nation. We learn that their cities seemed to be fortified all the way to the heavens, This was one of the chief complaints mentioned by the spies 40 years earlier. They're so afraid of the people who were the descendants of Anakim. Well, back in Numbers 13, the spies were sent on a recon mission into the land. And when they returned, they opined that the descendants of Anak were there uh, among the people and that the Israelites looked to be grasshoppers in their sight. Well, the people of Anak were a mysterious people mentioned in Genesis before the flood. They were very tall and mighty warriors, the offspring of an unholy union referred to back in Genesis chapter 6. But these people would have been destroyed through the flood. So the reference to these people here would have more likely been an urban legend than an accurate description. 
Whether or not these were actually the descendants of Anak, the point remains that the people were afraid of these mighty warriors. They towered over the Israelites with such imposing dominance that the people feared for their lives. Well, as we learn in Numbers 13, when the people's faith wavered in the sight of these warriors, the problem was not that their enemy was too tall, but that their God was too small. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, now 40 years later, Moses says that the Lord will cross over ahead of them as a consuming fire to devastate and subdue them. It is the Lord who will drive these out swiftly. God is the one who would fight their battles and bring them victory. Of this truth, Moses leaves no doubt. But there is a temptation that arises with such victory, a trap that Moses warns the people to avoid. It is the temptation to believe that the victory belongs to them. You see, God is the one who brings success, and any vestige of self-righteousness in the face of such victory is both unwarranted and unwise. God makes it clear in these verses that he did not drive them out because the Israelites were good, but instead because these other nations were evil. Remember, these seven nations were the descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham, whom God had cursed due to his father's sin back in Genesis chapter 9. These people were to be the slaves of Shem. Abraham was a descendant of this Semitic people, of Shem's line. Therefore, their victory was not so much about their goodness, but about their enemy's evil. This teaches us something of God's character, doesn't it? God would wait nearly 500 years to judge this sin from Genesis chapter 9, but make no mistake, God would not forget. He would execute justice just as he promised. Remember when God created the covenant with Abraham to bring his people into the land after spending 400 years in Egypt? A postscript to this covenant mentioned in Genesis 15:14 says that it will take four generations to return to this land. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You see, God had plans to judge the Amorites through the Israelite conquest. Now think of it, God was so far ahead of them that God was planning their judgment before the Amorites had ever even sinned. God's wisdom and judgment and foresight and planning are all in view here. He is a God of justice, he is a God of perfect timing, and he is a God of complete wisdom and infinite forethought. So, for these Israelites to waltz into this land and believe that their victory was theirs is absolutely asinine. God simply used them to accomplish his purposes in the world. They were pawns in his hand. Now we see this over and over and over in scripture. God uses nations to achieve his sovereign objectives. He does this with Assyria and with Babylon to judge the nations of Israel, and later in their story, and does this through Persia to restore the people back after judging them. This was the harsh lesson that Nebuchadnezzar declared after God had made him insane for a season. When he returned to civility, Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed that God is the only true king. He gives the kingdoms of men to whomever he wishes. And it is the epitome of idolatrous selfishness that would tempt these Israelites to believe that they were the ones who brought about such victory. No, make no mistake, it was the character of God, not the goodness of men, who would enact the conquest of Canaan. God would do this not because of them, but despite them. For the rest of the chapter then, Moses then reminds them of their sinfulness. He reminds them of their unbelief and their idolatry.
And he does this citing two primary examples. The first was their sin at Horeb, at Sinai, where Moses is up on the mountain at their request recording the law that had been given to the people. And there, at the base of the hill, creating idols made of gold that God gave them in Egypt as he led them out with a high hand, spoiling the Egyptians. The second was their unbelief situated on the very banks of this river as they quaked with fear in the sight of the enemy. Their unbelief, coupled with their idolatry, chronicled the history of wickedness. From the beginning, at Sinai, there was idolatry, and then when they got to the land, the edges of the land, there is unbelief. So their history that Moses is recounting for them started with idolatry and ended with unbelief. Moses pulls no punches calling them a stiff-necked people who deserve the judgment of God on their suspicion, not his favor for their goodness. Their victory was despite them, not because of them, and Moses makes this abundantly clear. It is instead God's faithfulness to his promise that brings about their victory. If they doubted whether or not it was their righteousness that brought them into this land, they had another thing coming. Because God says, I bring you into this land and I bring you victory, first of all, to judge the wickedness of the surrounding nations. Secondly, to fulfill my promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you're going to have to stand in line. You're at least third in line thinking about why I would let you into this land. It is an essential truth for them to understand. It's also an essential truth for us to understand, isn't it? Because we can be tempted at times to believe that God's blessing in our life is because of our obedience or because of our merit or because of our goodness. We have to remember the same principle that God gave to the children of Israel through Moses. God blesses us solely because of who he is. He is a God that fulfills his promises. It has nothing to do with us. God doesn't bless us because of our merit, nor does he punish us for our unrighteousness, because that's already been paid for on the cross. The victories in our own lives, the battles that God fights for us, they're not because we are exceptional, but because he is good. We identify more with the Israelites than we care to admit here. Are we not just as idolatrous, just as unbelieving as they were? We sometimes shake our head in the judgment of these Israelites when we're just as guilty as they were when we complain, when we doubt, when we're unfaithful. But God's plans are more extensive. His ways are higher. His objectives in the world far exceed our understanding and even our righteousness. God is good to us because of his covenant of grace made with Jesus on our behalf through the cross. He is faithful to that covenant. We receive the reward, pardon, victory, the spoils of the land, but they're not ours because of our righteousness. They're ours because of his righteousness, because of his goodness. We would do well to remember that. Now we're called, like the children of Israel, to be obedient, but it is God's character and nature to fulfill his promises and not our goodness that affords us his blessing and victory. It's who he is and his covenant promise that enacts our good fortune. This is why we must pray in such a way that we appeal to God's nature in fulfilling his promises to us. This necessitates our understanding of his word and his promises. The more you know his promises, the more you can claim them, believing that he is a God who keeps them. Well, this is precisely what Moses reminds the people of in the last of the chapter. At the beginning of the section, he chronicles God's faithfulness. And in the end, Moses chronicles their unfaithfulness. 
And the only thing that kept them from being annihilated because of it was Moses reminding God of who he is and of what he had said he would do for them. So as we close today, pray with me. Jesus, help us to remember that every victory belongs to you. You are accomplishing your purposes in the world through our lives. So guard us against temptation to believe that our advancement is due to our righteousness. Grant that we would see your goodness and your faithfulness in every victory. Forgive us of our selfishness. Forgive us of our unbelief and our idolatry. And help us to recognize that every victory belongs to you according to your goodness and in keeping with your plans. May we remember it, may we rejoice in it, and may we resolve not to be lifted up with pride in our goodness, but be literally humiliated by our stubbornness. May this posture keep us dependent upon you and your faithfulness, for you are faithful despite our infidelity. Thank you for your grace upon our lives and your victory for us. Lead us into success, but never let us forget how we got here. My source of hope.